I want you to know that your face is extra special today. The sound of your voice is extremely beautiful. As you mentioned, we've been separated to a degree that it's a precious time to be together today. It brings us true joy, and we could call it certainly a super blessing for this opportunity. And I hope we will cherish our time together in a way maybe that we haven't in the past. We want to thank those that are connected through Zoom this morning and welcome them to our service as well as all of you that are here today. We are extremely appreciative of your flexibility and your cooperation to come together in the format that we are using today to worship our God. Today I want to look at the important subject of unity. Unity is taught throughout Scripture. We see in Psalms 133, verse 1, David said, Behold how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. You know, David was a great warrior. In his youth, he defeated Goliath. He dealt with the conflict as Saul strove to destroy him. He led the armies of God as the king of Israel to defeat the enemies of Israel. He even had conflict and death in his own family, bloodshed in his own family. So he would have a unique perspective to especially appreciate unity and peace and the benefits of these elements. As we move to the New Testament, we find that unity becomes a foundational pillar of our Christian faith. It is something at the very core of who we must be as the people of God. Christ taught and emphasized unity in a way that it had never been taught before he came to this earth in his personal ministry. In Matthew 5, verse 9, as he taught the Sermon on the Mount, the Beatitudes, he said, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. As we turn on over to John chapter 17, and we look here after Jesus had his final Passover with his apostles, he turned in a passionate prayer to God. It would only be hours before he would be arrested and tried and crucified. The things that he brings forward in this prayer were near and dear to his heart. As he begins the chapter, he prays that God will be glorified through his death on the cross. As we come to verse 9 of John 17, he begins praying specifically for the apostles. They were to be left behind, and they were to carry the gospel forward in the absence of Christ. And so he began to plead with God on their behalf. We look to verse 11, and we find this from Christ. And now I am no more in the world, but these are in the world, and I come to thee. Holy Father, keep through thine own name those whom thou hast given me, that they may be one as we are. So Christ begins to talk about unity and this theme of oneness. He prays for protection for the apostles. And now this is interesting because he had already told them that they would be arrested, that they would be persecuted, that they would be beaten, that they would be imprisoned, even 
persecuted to the point of death. So he was not praying for their physical protection, but he was praying on behalf of them being unified. He asked the Father that they might be one, even as the Father and the Son are one. Christ knew if they maintained their solidarity and they brought this message to the world that the world would listen and the world would be impacted. But he also knew if they became divided or splintered that his message would not resonate as it should. Dropping down to verse 20, we, as Christ continues to pray, we come to the point where he prays for those who would believe on him through the efforts of the apostles. As we read, neither pray I for these alone, but for them also which shall believe on me through their word. In the first century, this was the spoken word of the apostles. After their time of teaching directly, it became their written word. The final total revelation of God, the inspired New Testament was completed and people began to read the word of the apostles and they were convicted and through faith they came in obedience and became a child of God. And even today as we think about us as the body of Christ, we are brought through the testimony of these apostles into the church, and Christ is praying for us as well today as he was those in the early times of the church. This prayer reaches every convert that's ever been brought into the church. This is a grand scheme or a scale of prayer like probably no other prayer that has been given because it touches every disciple of Christ. And so what did Christ pray in this broad prayer that he lifted to the Father on this day? Let's read from verse 21 through verse 23. That they all may be one as thou, Father, art in me and I in thee, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that thou hast sent me. And the glory which thou gavest me, I give to them. I have given them that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them and thou in me, that they may be made perfect in one, and that the world may know that thou hast sent me and hast loved them as thou hast loved me. I want us to break down these three verses together this morning because to me this is the most powerful passage in all of Scripture about the unity of God's people and specifically the unity of the body of Christ. What does Christ repeatedly say through this passage? He speaks of being one. He does that five different times in a short span of three verses about how important the oneness of his disciples are. He says, as thou, Father, art in me, and I in thee. Again, he repeats this theme that the unity of his followers that he's praying for will be the type of unity that the Father and the Son have. And I would submit to you today that there is no closer unity than we could ever discover or look at than that unity between the Father and the Son. Remember, this redemptive plan was formulated before the earth was ever created. 
God set it in motion. And at the time Christ came to this earth, he came to fulfill this redemptive plan. He did not come to carry out his own will. He didn't come to forward his own agenda, but he came to do the will of the Father. Every act, every word, everything that he did while he was on this earth to fulfill that redemptive plan was to follow the will of the Father. That type of unity is the unity that Christ is praying for here. For us to have the same closeness, to have the same purpose, to have the same message that the Father and the Son brought to this earth at a time that the world needed that message to redeem all of mankind and make it possible for man to have the right relationship with God. Look at this characteristic of the unity of the Father and the Son. This oneness is tied to our ability to submit to Christ. The oneness that Christ and the Father had was because Christ submitted to the Father. The oneness that we will have with Christ and one to another will be as we submit unilaterally. We give our submission and our obedience to Christ. That's the type of unity that Christ is praying for. Remember in Hebrews 5, 8 and 9, Though he were a son, yet learned he obedience by the things which he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the author of eternal salvation unto all of them that obey him. Obedience is that important. We have to have obedience if we're going to have oneness. If we're going to have oneness with each other, oneness with the Son, and oneness with the Father. Christ was made perfect because of His obedience to God, and we too can be made perfect and brought in unity one with another through our obedience to the gospel of Jesus Christ. What reason did Christ give for the need of this unity? He speaks of the glory which would be given to his disciples. And that glory would reflect back to him as Christ. And then that glory would ultimately reflect back to God. The same glory that he talked about early in the chapter that God would receive from him being crucified. That same type of glory when we are in our a unified state, and we're submitting, and we're obeying, that glory shines back through Christ and through the Father. And then he moves to the greater purpose of the unity. He said, we need to be one that the world may believe that thou hast sent me. And he didn't just say that once. He said that the world may believe. And then he comes down in verse 23, and he said that the world may know not only believe, but know that Christ was sent here to this earth from the Father in heaven because of our unity one with another. It was spoken as to what Christ could accomplish through us as the mission of the church. I submit to you today that Christ secured perfect spiritual unity at the cross. Every one of us are flawed. Every one of us are sinners. So we gather at the foot of the cross of Jesus Christ, and we look up to that sacrifice that he gave us on that cross. And you know what? Every one of us are in the same place. We have to have the blood of Christ 
to have a relationship with one another. This bond that we have through the shed blood of Jesus Christ should cover any difference that we might have one with another. We should be bound together in that perfect unity as those that have been brought to God through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. This oneness should impact us in such a way that the world will set up and take notice. If we love one another, if we treat one another correctly, if we're unified, if we speak a message of oneness, then the world will take up will notice and they will be influenced to want to come and be a part of the kingdom of Jesus Christ. At the same time, if we fail in our unity, if we fail to treat one another correctly, and that's seen in the world, then that will dilute the mission of the church, the mission of the church to seek and to save that which is lost. In fact, the way that Christ words this, it makes it helps us to see that this is critical to accomplishing what the church needs to accomplish in the world around us. We need to be that powerful witness of a uni unified people of God. Christ is praying, Father, please help my disciples get this right. As we start the kingdom here in Judea, we move to Samaria, to the uttermost parts of the earth. As the written word is put into the hands of people and they obey it and they come into the church, as the ages roll forward, my people need to get this right. They need to have the right platform of unity so they can be a powerful witness to the world. I believe that we can see Christ's emphasis in these three verses as strong as we can read about unity anywhere in Scripture. As his followers, as his disciples, how serious do we take the unity that we need as his body? Do we pray for unity often? Christ pled for this unity in a very passionate way. Do we do that? Do we in a very deliberate and intentional way? Do we seek unity with one another? Do we seek to maintain that unity that we find within the body of Christ? We need to emphasize that, and we need to place it forward as much so as Christ did as our leader. At the end of this passage, we see the point of love. Christ said, and hast loved them as thou hast loved me. You know, in John 13, verse 34, the Bible says through Christ's word that a new commandment was brought. Christ said, I give you this new commandment that you love one another as I have loved you, that ye also love one another. Love between God's people was not new, but the type of love that Christ modeled toward us in the sacrificial way that he displayed that love, that was something new. And he said, we need to love one another the same way that he loved us. And that's the point. This core sacrificial love is very important if we're to have the unity that we seek through Christ. This is a core component that in our heart we deeply love one another. If we implement this type of love, then we are obeying this new commandment that Christ brought. 
It will stand out in our lives. It will cause us to be peacemakers as the Beatitudes expressed and truly be the children of God. We need to practice everything that this passage teaches. We need to understand it and we need to practice it. As we look to the book of Acts, we see this type of focused purpose with the early Christians. The apostles went out with a singular goal to make disciples of all nations. With this solidarity, they turned the world upside down, as Acts verse 17 and verse 6 states. In fact, by about A.D. 62, as recorded here in Colossians 1, verse 23, the Bible says this gospel had been preached to every creature which was under heaven. This was possible because the apostles' doctrine was preached in its purity, without compromise, and all those who came to Christ were taught that they must submit. We all must submit, as we stated earlier, to have the type of unity that we need. Christ did not come to bring unity between believers and unbelievers, but he came to bring unity to those who would obey him. This ecumenical idea that's out here, we can adjust doctrine, we can adjust the commandments and the patterns of Scripture on, the, on behalf of unity is a false idea. Remember what Christ said in Matthew 10, verse 34, I came to, not to come to bring peace on the earth. I came not to send peace, but a sword. He said, the, the, your foes will be those of your own household. What was he talking about? The prince of peace saying that I did not come to bring peace? He's talking about that enmity that happens between believers and unbelievers. And whether it causes friction or not, we can't change the commandments and the patterns of God, even if that's within our own family. We have to be unified through submission in Christ. On the other hand, matters of judgment where God allows liberties should never be allowed to cause unrest or dissension. We should never be divisive about personal judgments, about opinions, about speculative theories, how much ever we may hold such theories in our own esteem. You know, it's really easy to be divided. Every one of us can have an opinion and a theory, and we can run to our corner, and we can defend that. Whether that's a commandment of God or not, if we hold that near to our heart, it's very easy for us to be divided over these types of things. What was the political climate at the time that Christ prayed this prayer to God? They had the Roman Empire on one side that was oppressing them to a great degree. On the other side, they had the hierarchy of the Jews that was against the Christians, was against Christ. In fact, these elements in tandem, the Jews, along with the Roman Empire, are the ones that crucified Christ. Did they have a lot of political unrest at the time of Christ? Certainly they did. And how did Christ respond to that? What did he teach his followers about those elements of politics and the pressures that were around them at that time? He said, fear not. 
He repeatedly told his disciples to focus on things more important than even these elements that could destroy or pressure or oppress them. He said, fear not him that kills the body but is not able to kill the soul, but fear him that can kill both or is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. What did Christ say about the Roman Empire? He said, give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar. Give to God what belongs to God. What did he say about the Jewish hierarchy? He said, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight and I would not be delivered to these Jews. You see, Christ's kingdom transcended those things that were going on around them in the world at that time. Did they have differences between them that they had to bring together to fulfill this prayer that Christ gave for his followers? Think about the divide between the Jew and the Gentile. People from totally different perspectives. And Christ took away that middle wall of partition when he died on the cross, but were they able to immediately erase that from their mind? They had lived their whole life in the perspective of being God's chosen people and not having a relationship with God. They had to work to take down that wall of partition out of their mind and to be together as the people of God. Not only that, you had slave owners and you had slaves. The book of Philemon was written by Paul to bring a slave owner and a slave together in unity in the body of Christ. Christ erases all divisions and brings us all together. If we will go to the foot of the cross and we see that we are bonded and unified through his shed blood, no matter what our differences are, in the way that we were raised, in our perspective, in our experiences in life, Christ can take these differences away and make us one. We had, they had the rich, they had the poor, they had soldiers, they had people that felt like they were being oppressed by the soldiers, they had tax collectors, they had those that felt they were paying unfairly to these who collected tax, we had people that felt it was okay to eat meat and people that felt that it wasn't okay. They had all of these differences, and yet the Scriptures through Jesus Christ and the reinforcement of his apostles as we read the rest of the New Testament stated over and over again that, that the people of God must put aside these differences and must be unified to follow Christ, to answer the prayer that he passionately worded to the Father which is in heaven. What did Christ say about these differences that we were to be brought together in unity? What was taught in the New Testament following the gospel? Here is a sample of the different chapters in the New Testament that talk about the need for unity for a code of conduct among God's people that exhibits the love that we need to have for one another, the sacrificial love, so that we can be unified as his people. 
Look at the type of coverage that this was given because they did have problems between the Jews and the Gentiles. But the apostles addressed those things very directly along with all the other differences, and they taught these people to be unified. Paul said in Galatians 3.28, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither bond nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. He erased every line of division, division that matters. The things that don't matter are the things that we work out one with another. The things that matter, we come to God in submission, and we're covered through the blood of Christ, and we're brought together in unity. In Romans 14, Paul taught about one that thought it was okay to eat meat and one that thought it was not okay. These were brothers in the church at Rome. And Paul very bluntly tells them that they are not to despise one another. They're not to judge one another, but they are to allow each his judgment in this matter so that they can work together and be together in the body of Christ. Are we able to see these teachings? Are we able to take the admonition and apply it? These teachings of the New Testament beautifully set forth the perimeters of our liberties in Christ by advocating fellowship through this sacrificial love and respect for each other's liberties. If we read a lot of, of this material, we would be here all day long. That much material exists on this subject of unity, and it shows us how it was emphasized over and over again in the Scripture. That brings us to the 21st century. What is our political system? Are we polarized and divided? Several months ago, the elders had a discussion about how we saw this hostility, the level of, of rhetoric, the hatred and distrust that was developing in our country to a greater height. And I would submit to you today it's even at a greater height than it was a few months ago. We have a political system that is very, very divided. We have the Republicans and the Democrats and the Libertarians and the Independents. Does this cause a division in the body of Christ? Should it any more than the politics of the first century? Certainly not. We can use our judgments in matters of opinion and theory and ideology, but never should these things enter into the body of Christ and cause division. In our current situation, I believe that Satan is attacking our unity. Satan loves division. He loves strife. It mutes the message of Jesus Christ when his people are fighting and having division one with another. There are potential points of friction because of the swift changes this, that, that this pandemic pandemic Pandem pandemic. Maybe I won't ever get that word out right. This virus, this COVID-19 that we're facing in our nation today brings about points of friction. Just like you mentioned in the opening, there's different perspectives. There's different ideas. There's different opinions. We're more isolated now because of 
what's happening. And when we're isolated, we tend to have a doubt or apprehension, and we begin to get suspicious with one another. And rather than the sacrificial love and serving one another and esteeming others above ourselves, we tend through this stress and through the fear that's being promoted, fear of a virus, fear of the economy crashing, fear of this, fear of that. These are things used to motivate people in, in political ways. And rather than listening to that, we need to go to God's Word and build our faith and see the importance of being unified one with another. There's other elements at work. You know, we want to be informed. We want to make good decisions about ourselves and our family. There's people divided over which group of doctors and which group of scientists are telling the truth. And what about our health system? Is it corrupt? Is it something good? The people are at odds over the government's response. Some people believe the government's trying to help. Some people believe they're not. And again, these are things that can cause differences of opinion. And if we're not careful, we fall into this idea that's going on in society around us that we need to be separated. If we're not careful, a little bit of pride gets in our thinking. You know, the Bible says over in 1 Corinthians chapter 8 that knowledge puffs up. And sometimes we get to thinking, you know, our, our information that we've been able to see and figure out here, this is more accurate than the other information that's being promoted. And so we get on our soapbox and we want to give our opinion and our thoughts about these different things. We need to be very careful because I believe that these points of friction if we don't handle them right, if we don't look at these principles of God's Word, they can cause us to look down on one another, to begin to shame one another, even to begin to evil surmise about other people with different ideas, questioning their motives and attacking them in ways that are not at all Christ-like, that do not exemplify the love that we should have for one another. Ephesians 4, 1 to 3, I therefore the prisoner of the Lord beseech you that you walk worthy of the vocation wherewith you are called with all lowliness and meekness, with long suffering, forbearing one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Here's a little short section of all of that material that I showed you that's in all of the, the chapters following the Gospels in the New Testament. And what does it say? We need to be low. We need to be meek. Humility enhances unity. Pride is, fights against our unity. So we have to look at these, and we have to look at our own activities and our own attitudes, and we have to ask hard questions to see that we are not being more a part of the problem than we are of the resolution of the division that we see around us. I'm going to lump a lot of these things together, and I'm just going to call them politics. And I want to ask this question this morning for all of us to consider. Are we able to put the perspective of our Christian faith out front and then look at politics after we put it through that prism? Or do we put our political perspective out front, and then that changes 
our faith, our thoughts about what the Bible teaches. Do we get so wrapped up in these things that we do agenda-driven study so we can go to the Scriptures and prove what we want to believe? We are very different. We are from different backgrounds. We have different races, black, brown, and white, and in between. We have those that are rich and those that are poor. We have a lot of these differences that can divide us and cause us to have different perspectives. But let me tell you that the kingdom of Christ transcends the temporary powers of this world. These ideas, these uh, ideologies that we see in politics, the platforms, all of, this thing, all of these things that are stirring around us, let's look at them in the right perspective. Let's look at them first through what Christ has taught us to do and how he has taught us to act and the love that we need to have for one another. In Luke 9, verse 23, we have another pillar in Christianity. I believe this is profound. I believe this identifies whether we're a disciple or not. Christ said, if a, any man will come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. I want to ask you this morning, what does it mean to deny self? We have to put our own inclinations, our own opinions, our own judgments aside, and we have to take up the cross, which is this love of suffering, sacrificial love. We have to take that up, and we have to follow Christ. Who is Christ? Who is it that we're following? We could make a profile of Christ, and we could list an almost an innumerable list of top qualities and characteristics of Christ. I'd put seven up here. What's my profile? What can I do on my own, of my own abilities, of my own thoughts? You see, if I'm not careful, I'm the very opposite of Christ. Where he has sacrificial love, I'm self-focused. Where he's humble, I'm pride prideful. Where he's submissive, I'm resistant to authority. Where he has a pure heart, if I don't get my way, I'll pout about it. I'll be passive-aggressive. Where he's patient, I'm impatient. Where he's forgiving, I'm unforgiving. Where he's peaceable, I'm confrontational. I will tell you this morning the meaning of denying self is to erase my profile, to take that off of the table, and to submit to Jesus Christ, to adjust myself to become as Christ, to adjust my profile to be Christ-like. This is the core of what we have to be, what we have to do to be disciples. And I ask today that we all consider this carefully and we adjust away from who I am to who Christ wants us to be. And when we do that, we can have perfect unity. We can have the unity that Christ prayed for in John chapter 17. I leave you this morning with this verse. I'm crucified with Christ. There's denying self. There's putting our old man to death. 
Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ lives in me. There's taking up the cross, following Christ, allowing Christ to determine who we are rather than all of these other elements. Elements that sometimes spill out in the world and dilute our ability to be the message that Christ wants us to be. The life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I hope that we've been edified through our study of the Scripture this morning. I pray that you will take these thoughts, that you will take these Scriptures, and that together we can work out our own salvation with fear and trembling. This morning we're going to offer an invitation. If you have a spiritual need today, if you desire to obey the gospel, or you desire the prayers of the church, we would ask you to come forward and be seated here on the front seat as we stand and sing the song of invitation.